science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they felt right. And I just thought, well, I figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hi everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week the theme is magnetism, and we're bringing you two stories about the force of attraction. The romantic kind, that is. Our first story this week is from Wendy Suzuki. It was recorded in March 2017 at Union Hall in Brooklyn as part of our annual Brain Awareness Week show. As a professor of neuroscience, at NYU, one of the favorite things that I get to do is teach undergraduates. And I'm I'm always trying to motivate them, saying that neuroscience is so cool because by studying neuroscience, you get to understand yourself, your unique self, how your brain cells are connected that allows you to see and feel and remember and pay attention to the world in the unique way that you do. So in that vein, one of my most popular lectures that I give is called the neurobiology of love. And it has to do with these um, kind of uh, uh, hamster-like critters called prairie voles. And they live out on the plains somewhere in Montana. And these prairie voles are unique because they're one of the few animals that form lifelong sexual pair bonds. Yes, they are the Disney of animals out there. They're one of the only ones that actually do that. And um, they live in big, happy, Brady Bunch-style family units out there on the the plains. And you might wonder how a new pair bond forms if they're living in these family units. Well, let's say you're a female juvenile prairie vole, and you're walking down the path, and suddenly you smell this intoxicating odor. And that odor is the urine of a male prairie vole that's not in your family unit, okay? It's not intoxicating if if the urine is from a male in your family unit, but if it's from a male outside of your family unit, it becomes intoxicating. And if the depositor of that intoxicating urine is around, a pair bond can form. And how it forms is that that juvenile male and female then mate for 40 hours straight. (laughs) Let me say that again. The male and female mate for 40 hours straight. And after that, voila, they have formed a lifelong pair bond. And neuroscientists saw that and said, wait a second, I need to find out what's happening in their brains. And it turns out that it has to do with two key hormones. In the female prairie vole, during that 40-hour mating period, she releases a hormone called oxytocin. Now, if you go to Amazon.com now, you can get snortable oxytocin. Uh, that's called um, companion love potion. doesn't quite work that way. And in the males, during that 40-hour mating period, uh, they have to release vasopressin. If, if the males don't release vasopressin and the females don't release oxytocin, those pair bonds don't form. So it is a fascinating scenario. And, and just for those of you that are thinking, it doesn't quite work exactly the same way in people, but, but um, still, it's a fascinating system to, to study. And so I was so excited to, to uh, develop this lecture. And uh, I finished all the slides and really excited to be able to give this lecture, and I took a walk. And I walked walking down Washington Square Park, right down the street from, from my office, and then I see him. 
the homeless man peeing against the tree. And I realized that if I was a prairie vole, my life would be so convenient because that would be my Prince Charming. No more swiping, no more filling out little boxes. And I thought for a moment, I, I, was, I was a little disappointed. I, I wasn't a prairie vole because it would be so easy. Well, the other great thing about being at NYU is that I get to um, kind of collaborate with all the other cool professors at NYU. And I came together with the director of the graduate acting program of the world famous Tisch School of Performing Arts. And uh, we decided to do a, a seminar for my neuroscience majors. I'm the director of undergraduate studies. So this was a special seminar and it was gonna be called Inside the Actor's Brain. And of course, I was going to talk about the emotion that all of the sonnets, all the movies, all the plays are about love and attachment. So I was going to tell my Prairieville story. And then he was going to bring all of the graduate actors in the graduate acting program and uh, kind of demonstrate how actors kind of bring emotions and, and practice their own emotions. And you have to realize these are the actors that are going to win the Academy Award in the next 10 to 20 years. So very exciting. It was really popular. Full house. We get there. I stand up, give my Prairie Vole, um, Prairieville uh, uh, talk, and then um, they call up all the graduate actors to the to the stage. And it happens that uh, one of the acting coaches that I know was going to do the uh, exercise, and I had done an exercise with him. And spontaneously, I didn't decide I was going to do this. I raised my hand and said, "Well, I want to do the exercise too. You know, I, I helped organize this, so I can do whatever I want." So I go up on the stage. <laughs> I get up on stage with all of the graduate actors, okay? And so we, um, I quickly realized this was nothing like the other acting exercise that I did. Um, and we got in two rows facing each other. So I had a partner and I was facing him. And the first instruction from, from my coach, the coach, was you're looking at somebody that you love deeply. This person has been in your life for years, through good times, through bad times, this is a deep love that you feel. Now, it was very intense. These were all serious students. And I decided to interpret it like general love. So my, my strategy was to project all the different kinds of loves that I feel onto this guy. Um, family love, romantic love, uh, uh, friendship love, um, um, love for people that I've lost and, and I, I no longer have in my life anymore. And it was so easy to do because when I looked at this handsome young graduate student with these beautiful dark eyes, he looked like he loved me deeply. So it was very easy exercise and I don't know how long we did it, but then came the next command and he was giving commands to different rows. So the first command was to the other row that I was facing. The command was take one step away from your partner. Nobody moved. And he thought nobody heard, and he said, hey, you, you row, please step one, one step back. Still nobody, it took five times to actually get them to move like half a step back. Because we were, we were bonded and, and we didn't want to move away. Then the next command came to us and he said, okay, my row, you can either step forward and say, I'm sorry. Or you can take one step away from your partner and say, I love you. This was easy. I took one step away and I said, I love you. And other people did whatever they wanted at, at different times. 
And we, we did these exercises until the big question came. So sometime in the middle of the exercise, he told our row, he said, I'm sorry to tell you, but the person that you're looking at right now has deceived you badly. Just, just at the bottom of your heart, your heart is broken because this person has deceived you. You could have heard a pin drop in that auditorium. And then suddenly, everybody in my row started crying. And I felt like crying too, and I'm a group cry, so I start crying. <laughs> Forget the fact that all my undergraduates are in the audience watching me on stage cry. I, I, I wasn't thinking about them. And um, we went on through these different exercises. We had different choices after this big reveal of the deception. And suddenly, it, it felt like just five minutes later, the exercise ended. And the coach did debriefings with some of the graduate actors. He was fielding questions, lots of questions from the audience. And suddenly he said, well, Wendy, you're the only non-actor up on the stage. What did you go through? What was your experience? And I said, when you told me that my partner deceived me, I knew you were wrong. I, I, I could see it in his eyes. I mean, I mean, it was so clear. He looked, he, he, he was just telling me he, he didn't do it. And then the exercise was over and he leaves the stage. Uh, and I'm like, but we, we had something. Where, 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 are, you, where are you going? And, and, but of course, the, the exercise was over. I le left the stage. We had this last e uh, part of the event. It was a big success. It was 30 minutes over. Everybody stayed. And um, students started coming up to me asking questions. But I'm like, I'm going to go meet my guy. I mean, I don't even know his name. And so finally, the questions stop. And I go out in the hallway. And I see him eating pizza. And so I go over, you know, very casual. Hey, you know, great doing the exercise with you. Uh, and I introduced myself. We gave each other a hug. And I, I left the building. And I left the building thinking, Thank God I am not an actor because that was so emotional and, and I don't think I could do that every day. So I happily went back to my own building uh, and went and, and started designing experiments and teaching and got into my, my work again. And I didn't think about this exercise and, and this experience for a whole month until one day this was in February, the end of February. It's walking south down uh, Broadway, away from my building. And it was one of those really beautiful, bright winter days, kind of like today, where the light is very kind of metallic looking. And I'm walking down the street. I could picture exactly where I was. And I saw him. And he was walking towards me. And he was deep in conversation with another guy that I recognized from the graduate acting program. And it was like... Everything went in slow motion, and we started walking, and my hair was bouncing, and he was walking, and I even heard background music in my ears. And I mean, he just passed, and I was just in awe. I thought, this was amazing, this five-minute kind of exercise, and a month later, I'm still deeply in love. Here's the problem, nobody told me how to act. I just fell in love with this guy. And I thought, oh my God, we have just blown the prairie voles out of the water because I'm sorry, you cannot understand what happened in that situation just by studying prairie voles. But I also knew how you could. Let's get those actors into a brain scanner and have them cycle through all of their emotions because if they were as real as the emotions that I felt, 
we could understand deeply and much more deeply than we understand now this range of emotions, including love. And then I thought, well, I always said it, neuroscience is cool because it helps you understand yourself. And usually by that I think about you know, vision and memory, but it helps you understand what makes you most unique, how you love other people. And it's practical too, because you have to understand that the next time I wanna fall in love with somebody, I have some powerful tricks up my sleeve. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was Wendy Suzuki. Wendy is a professor of neuroscience and psychology at New York University. She is a recipient of numerous grants and awards for her research, including the Lindsley Prize from the Society for Neuroscience, the prestigious Trolland Research Award from the National Academy of Sciences, and NYU's Golden Dozen Teaching Award. Her first book, Healthy Brain, Happy Life, came out in paperback in March of 2016 and is an international bestseller. Our second story today has two storytellers, Nir Ashri and Deborah Berebache. It was recorded in June 2017 at Union Hall in Brooklyn as part of our seventh anniversary celebration. The theme of the night was love and science. So I grew up in Mexico City in a community that was fairly conservative and discouraged women from pursuing a career in science. I was very much in love with physics and math and I wanted to discover the laws of the universe and how things worked. And my mom told me at a very young age to not tell anybody in school that I liked math and physics because probably I would never be able to get married. <laughs> and that nearly happened. But you know, I learned to hide my love for physics. And so my advisors in school were no, no better, and they told me the same thing. So when it can, came time to apply to college, I applied for philosophy because I thought, oh, I could ask all the questions that I want to know and find out about the world. So I started to study philosophy for two years. But we have a, a French educational system in Mexico where you cannot study other subjects simultaneously. So after two years... I decided to burst out and I said, no, I want to study physics. So I applied behind everyone's back. Just like, you know, a lot of kids do crazy stuff when they're teenagers. I was like reading books about Tycho Brahe and like Isaac Newton and like really cool stuff, but I had to hide it. And so I applied to school and finally I got a wonderful scholarship and I couldn't say no to that. So I went to Brandeis University, which is a small school. Yay! In Massachusetts. And uh, I met a mentor from India, a wonderful grad student who allowed me to skip the first two years of the physics major so that I could cram everything in a summer and be able to finish in the time that I had the scholarship, which was two years. I finished that and then, you know, my family wanted me to come back to Mexico so that, again, they would be able to tell me that I would not be able to get married having done that. And I was just too hungry for knowledge and to continue to pursue my doctorate in physics. So I went to look for places and schools around Boston and I ended up visiting MIT. And that's where I met this really nice geeky guy. Maybe. Yes, that's me. 
Um, and I was at the time the senior graduate student in the lab and one of your many duties as the senior graduate student in the lab is to show prospective students around the lab and make them feel that it's the best place in the world. Um, and actually for me it was, I was a lucky person there, so I didn't need to do too much convincing and I showed um, Deborah all the great equipment we had. It was a laser lab, we were doing laser light sky. <laughs> yes, yes, I know, it really was a laser. It was a, that's not a euphemism for it. Um, <laughs> It, it was a laser, and um, and uh, but I but I did of course keep a sort of distant professional tone because I thought well what if she does arrive I don't I don't want to you know anything weird to happen and so I was very formal with her I think yeah and so at the time I decided I'm gonna go back to Mexico City for a while be with my family and then I'm gonna do a master's in physics there I wasn't ready to pursue my PhD. And then a year and a half later, we kept in touch and uh, I got accepted, but I got accepted on the West Coast to Stanford. And uh, I went uh, to MIT because I was about to hear from them and I did get accepted there. And I went back that summer to see if we could hang out and I could decide between both options. And at that point, I had already graduated. I had my uh, PhD, so I didn't need to be professional anymore. Um, <laughs> And uh, yeah, we 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 um, we made out basically, and, <laughs> and and it was we were we were together for for a month, right? As far as physicists can make out, <laughs> if you know what I mean. So it was a pretty Ouch. innocent relationship. <laughs> I thought he was brilliant. But uh, he still is. He still is. Husband material, maybe not so much. So uh, you know, I. I, you, I, I decided, well, actually, you were pretty uh, selfless because you said... Yeah, no, I, there's a statue commemorating the event um, <laughs> somewhere at MIT because I told Deborah, with, you know, you have MIT on one hand and you have Stanford and actually the, the person behind the offer at Stanford was Steve Chu. You may have heard of him. He had won a Nobel Prize then and also became secretary, eventually Secretary of Energy for President Obama, so a big deal. Uh, and I said, you know... You should go to Stanford. Yeah, I know that means long, means long distance for us, but it's the better place for you. Amazing. And so I ended up going to Stanford and <laughs> working with Steve, too. And uh, our relationship didn't really last. And it was all my fault. You know your relationship is in trouble when your girlfriend tells you not to visit her for Thanksgiving. I was just overwhelmed. I mean, a physics PhD for somebody who had like two, three years before not remembered algebra, like A plus B, all that square. Like I didn't even remember that. And and like I was here with the creme de la creme with all the, the wizards that had won mathematics Olympics. And I, I just couldn't focus on men. No, you had to focus on one man. You know, it's just the word men. It was just me. Yeah, you mean Isaac Newton. <laughs> well, technically, technically, you also have to focus on Albert Einstein because relativity is examined in part of the general, in the qualifying exams at Stanford. At least they did it at I MIT. I probably failed that part, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I ended up pursuing my degree there, and I, I was depressed and, and struggling, and it was just a really hard time. But I did end up going to the American Physical Society, which is a very large conference with thousands of physicists, and I ended up going to his talk. So yeah, so we had 
broken up because eventually when your girlfriend doesn't want to see you, it, it's hard to maintain a relationship. <laughs> <laughs> and, but but I, 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 I broke up after her qualifying exams. I, I He waited. was a saint. I was the right, I did it, I did it the proper way. Um, and so then I am at this premier conference for physics in the United States and about to give a talk. And of course, I'm all in my head getting ready for the talk. And who comes in? Deborah. And I'm like, oh, just what I needed. My ex. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but I, I still managed somehow. I don't know how. I kept it together. I gave a talk. And, and then we talked after that. Um, we well, you it. actually kissed me. I did. I kissed week. you. That's my way of that's my may, way of communicating physics when I'm really excited. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, we did kiss, but we we did not get back together. It was just... Yeah, that was it. I kind of wanted to, but it was confusing, and I went back to Stanford, and long distance just didn't work out for us. Right. So, thirteen years went by. Thirteen years, people. And then a sad thing happened in my family. My dad passed away all of a sudden in Mexico City. And it was really tragic because we're three daughters and I'm the oldest and my both of my younger sisters were married and with kids already. After all, I was like the black sheep in the family. And so I went back to Mexico and I was just destroyed. And my sister told me, you know what? We have to sell dad's home. And you're the only one who's kept all that stuff, you know, all the memories and letters and stuff from when you were growing up because you haven't really moved out. So I have room to keep 10 boxes for you. That's it. That's all I have in my house. So you better clean out your room and just pack what you need. So I started to clean out my room and it took me a whole month. And then I found nearest letters from 13 years before and poems and funny pictures that you all geeky people out there would really love. Like, just, you know, getting into the hallways at MIT and, and, and classrooms that you can only get by borrowing some important person's key and taking funny pictures with, you know, writing on the board, like, nudity is sinful and, you know, all kinds of, like, crazy geeky stuff. And I was like, wow, he was such a terrific guy and so nice and so ready to get married. So probably, I mean, very likely he's married and with kids by now. Oh, how sad. I was miserably single at the time. So I just packed everything in a folder and I kept it. And I said, one day I'll write a book, a novel about this crazy affair between two physicists. So I put it there. And after 13 years of not hearing from him or Googling him or anything, and I moved back to New York. And, and, and what happened is I actually by a strange coincidence, was single at the time and never married, no children. And... Um, <laughs> true. Um, um, and I, I actually had been single for about 20 minutes and my friends said to me, look, you, you got to do something about this. Um, why don't you go online? And until then, I was very skeptical on online dating. I, I didn't think it was the way to go. And they worked on me and pushed hard, really put a lot They of pressure. They worked I, on you? You yeah. should have seen the pictures on his profile. He looked like a pedophile. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so they, we, we, I, I got a profile up on Match, on Match. And I, some of you may know how Match works. After you're all up and running, you start getting matches. I got 12. They're like eggs. You know, they send you 12 of them. And... <laughs> 
um, I'm looking at him, I'm thinking, I paid $85 for this? They can't even spell. And so I was, I was very disappointed. It was late at night. It was around midnight. And just then, my sister, who happened uh, to live one floor below me, said, um, she was in the room, though. No, she, this is not through the apartment. She said, <laughs> she said, um, you know, you can, you don't have to just accept matches. Why don't you search for something? What do you mean? Well, search by some criterion that's important to you. I said, well, you know, I'd really like to meet a woman who speaks more than one language. Uh, that's that's very important for me. So I did a search on uh, English, I'm sorry, Spanish, Italian, and Hebrew. And the first person to come up with a 98% match was Science Girl 13, um, who <laughs> was not using her real name, but I recognized her by her picture because she looked exactly the same after 13 years. I thought you said I had improved. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, maybe I did, maybe I did. Um, um, anyway, so now, you know, I had not written been in touch with her for 13 years because I was the kind of, you know, the past is the past and you move on to greener pastures. And here I'm back at the same pasture. And um, I, I thought about it, but I said, you know, it's been so long, what the heck? And I wrote to her a long and, if I may say so, beautiful <laughs> email in Spanish because I had learned Spanish for her. She didn't, Deborah didn't know this. I learned Spanish um, for because, uh, I, well, um, and so I just said, you know, maybe we could basically saying maybe we can meet again. And then I, boom, send it. Well, first of all, <laughs> you said to me that you learned Spanish because you didn't want people to think that you had only started to learn it for a woman. So you continued with it for your own sake. So the record, this is a public forum. Let's get this straight. So what happened was I started learning it for you. Okay. Then we broke up in second semester Spanish. And it's just terrible to drop a class mid-semester. It looks very bad. Even though I was just taking it, you know, as a listener, it's just not good. So then I continued. And after that, I said, look, if I drop it now, people think, oh, he just learned Spanish for a woman. He wasn't really into Spanish. So I did three more semesters. And <laughs> so here I am receiving this amazing email but I freaked out because I had just been back from Mexico and three months before I had gone through this really difficult uh, time in my life and I received this email and he was I don't know just it confused me and so I write back just one sentence like wow this is weird <laughs> I recently reread your letters like are you in New York after 13 years, wow, this is weird. Um, so that was not what I was expecting. Um, and in fact, I was almost about to not reply because there was not even a dear near or a hello. Hello would have been nice. Um, but um, I, I, so what, but I did notice one thing. I, I, somehow I have this habit of checking the time at which people send me emails and I noticed that she had sent it to me 20 minutes after I had sent it to her so somewhere around 12 30 a.m. and I realized so you knew I was desperate absolutely <laughs> um, <laughs> I got a chance um, and so then um, what I did is I said okay if this is the game we're playing I'll write back in English and I said yes hello Deborah. I'm I do live in New York 
Um, and I'm happy you re- hope you enjoyed rereading the letters. Would you like to meet for coffee and tea? Because coffee and tea is over in 20 minutes. And if things don't work out and we're strangers, we can move on with our lives. Well, honoring my Mexican-Lithuanian heritage, I wrote back saying, after 13 years, coffee or tea? I'd rather do vodka or tequila. (laughs) Um, So I said, well, if you're going to raise me drinks, I re-raise you dinner, and let's go out to dinner, which we did. So we met for dinner, March, is it going to be? 28th, 28th, March 28th. (laughs) And it was an amazing dinner. My legs were shaking. It was weird again. Uh, and then I had a great memory. I remember a lot of You just forgot things. the date we met. Um, <laughs> you know, your memory was okay. You remembered partial <laughs> portions of my life. You remembered I, everything. I did. Somehow I remembered. I, you had had a birthday. We met in March and your birthday was February 13th. And that surprised you that I remembered your birthday. Um, and then you said, well, yes. And I remember yours, April 25th. And I said, close. <laughs> December 29th. <laughs> but that's when I knew I had the upper hand. And that's why I kissed her in the elevator on the way down. Um, and, and we've been... And then I knew like yeah. this was it for me. I was like head over heels, right? That right, moment. We were, and, and a year and a half later, we got married. <laughs> and we got married and we had this amazing wedding and we got married. The backdrop of our ceremony was an image taken of a galaxy by the Hubble telescope. Yeah. And we had this really cool physics wedding. Yeah. <laughs> Everything around there was, a robot, was, was yeah. physics. <laughs> and <laughs> a few months ago, uh, our uh, first daughter was born. Yay! And yes. we like to perform a lot of physics experiments. We do. <laughs> <laughs> Not a lot of them she likes. No, yeah, no, but she, she's a good sport. Yeah. And um, I and think... Yeah, so um, I think... Um, well, well, I know that you're always going to be my second love after physics. It's going to be the same for me. I know. <laughs> I know. But you know what? What? I'm thinking about the wedding, and I know you owe me a kiss in public because you didn't give me one at our wedding, even though we planned for it. it, That is true. I got nervous and forgot to kiss the bride. (laughs) He shook my hand. It's on video. (laughs) But I'll kiss you now. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Nir Ashri and Deborah Berebache. Nir is a professor of physics and biology at Yeshiva University who has received grants from the National Science Foundation to support his research on the self-assembly of globular proteins. Deborah is the first Mexican woman to graduate with a physics PhD from Stanford University. Currently, she's chief data scientist at Metis and host of Discovery Channel's Outrageous Acts of Science TV show. Both Nira and Debbie have previously told stories at the Story Collider on their own. You can find them both at storycollider.org on our podcast page. Nira's is titled The Milk Heist, and Debbie's is Passing on the Gift. If you enjoyed today's story or a fan of the podcast, please consider subscribing or writing us a review on iTunes. It helps us climb up the rankings, and that helps new listeners find the podcast. 
The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tithmian Company Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. Story Collider is produced by Liz Neely, Aaron Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Paula Crox, and Sheen Hanlon, Miriam Seringhalem, Rosie Waldron, Cassie Soliday, Audrey Kearns, Eli Chen, Zach Stovall, Kelly Vinal, Mesa Salita, and Emma Yarborough, with help from our many vendors and volunteers. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Union Hall for hosting these shows, and to Love for being real, like magnets. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.